This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod with always, always with Maxwell Bogue. <laughs> Hey, Joris, how you doing today? I'm great, I'm great. How are you? I'm fine. I'm not tongue-tied, but you know. Uh, <laughs> who, do, who do I have on the 3D pod today? Well, we have Raymond Weitekamp, uh, or, or I don't know how to actually pronounce that, because it seems like it's a Dutch name, but it, it, it's, it's, it's an American name. <laughs> So yeah, I, I think you. I think you'd say it right if if I were over there. Uh, yeah. Over How here, I say I say Weidekamp, but um, okay, okay, but okay. yeah, I think it's. Uh, I think there's some some Dutch Weidekamps and some German Weidekamps. So oh, okay. yeah, yeah, I I'm sort of uh, enough removed from that where we say Weidekamp. Weidekamp. Uh, okay. <laughs> Raymond Weidekamp. <laughs> and Raymond is the uh, founder of Polyspectra. Uh, Polyspectra is, uh, well, as a technology, they, they basically have commercialized off of, uh, uh, Raymond's work at, uh, Caltech, something called functional lithography. Uh, so essentially what they want to do is, well, they're a materials company and they want to develop some advanced manufacturing applications and, 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 and tools using materials or putting materials in the driving seat. Uh, so essentially they have uh, a number of polymers. And you can then change the individual properties of these polymers uh, to well to 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 meet new uses and new applications, and hopefully that would then make uh, existing uh, lithography processes much uh, more powerful. And that's kind of the idea, right, Raymond? Kind of, or yeah, how would you describe it? Yeah, you're you're totally onto it. Uh, I think I think that's a good summary. Um, yeah, so the the sort of flexibility of the platform of materials that we have, we, we sort of refer to this new family of materials as cyclic olefin resins, C-O-R is the, the acronym. And um, the, the first thing that we're starting with uh, for, you know, the 3D printing folks on the show to sort of ground it in something that's clear is making the most rugged photopolymer resins that are available for stereolithography 3d printing and specifically starting with um these dlp style uh you know upside down uh printers um so we haven't done a lot in the traditional sort of top down you know big vat photopolymerization ones but um right now you're talking about like the little desktop ones right no, not not uh, not necessarily little, um, but uh, so the the three the the three uh, publicly announced uh, partners that that we have Core Alpha available for, which is the first of this family of materials, um, is uh, from Asiga, um, and you know they have some models that are benchtop, some models that are you know stand up uh, production. Um, so we support all the Asiga printers. We support the uh, now called eTech, but was Envision Tech and is part of Desktop Metal now. Um, E1 CDLM, and then also we just launched at Rapid a couple months ago the Origin One, which is the new DLP printer line under Stratasys. So, yeah. So just because they're uh, DLP doesn't mean they need to be sort of smaller benchtop and. Yeah, definitely, definitely smaller than like a, a Viper, or like some of the the bigger VAT systems. Right. But um, you but know, not, still not no, and yeah, and we're still very focused on doing production applications. So 
you know, the our materials are based on completely different chemistry than you know what existed when stereolithography was invented in the early '80s. Um, and so there, there's basically nothing in our resins in terms of the starting materials and components that are in any other <laughs> resin that's sold on the market. So actually, that's been the it's both sort of, you know, our technical differentiator and the way that we're able to hit properties that people have been sort of dreaming of for 40 years. But it it's also frankly been what sort of, I don't know, took us like six years um, since founding to actually like get it to be a drop-in system is like, we just have a completely different supply chain than, mm-hmm. you know, the rest of the world. So we can't just sort of call up all the the people who are, you know, supplying resin and like photo initiator to the like bigger resin makers. Like we, we're not even doing the same chemical mechanism. But what does that mean? Because we're used to this kind of methacrylic ester kind of stuff and, and all the regular, well, for us, regular chemistry. What does that mean? I mean, I, th- I think it's interesting to have a new technology and a, or a new way of approaching a technology. It makes you more resilient to stuff. So I think that would be that would be very interesting as well. But 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 what does that mean exactly? Could you go a little bit more into detail on that? Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to go as deep on the the chemistry <laughs> side as you want. <laughs> I have a lot of fun talking about it. People's eyes might glaze over as we start to go too deep. So pull 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 me out if if I'm going too crazy. There's two kind of classic uh, photopolymerization methods that have been around since the birth of let's just start with stereolithography and not go all the way to all, you know, photolithography, but it's basically photoradical systems and, and um, cationic or like photoacid based systems. So, you know, pretty much every resin from, you know, 3d systems and uh, all the uh, polyjate stuff and all of the sort of, uh, you know, what people generically would call resin type printing. Now, you know, there's so many different, sub names and stuff right but anything you're using like to cure the system is one of those two mechanisms um and so when i was in graduate school at caltech um i actually invented a third option <laughs> so none of the above it's not photoradical it's not cationic it is the the mechanism of the polymerization is called ring opening metathesis polymerization and mm-hmm. the Just what i discovered up. Yeah, it does. It's really, uh, really amazing. And it's what I discovered was a variation of what people uh, would call the Grubbs catalyst. And this is a catalyst that my PhD advisor, Bob Grubbs, won the Nobel Prize for in 2005. You know, I was too young to have done anything to contribute um, to what he won the Nobel Prize for. What I figured out was a version of that Nobel Prize winning catalyst that uh, didn't do anything in the dark. So it was uh, what you might call a latent catalyst. Mm-hmm. And then when you shine light on it, it starts doing the the polymerization. And so then that became the basis for, you know, initially doing kind of traditional photolithography. So, you know, spinning thin films on silicon wafers and hitting them with a mask aligner. And then when we decided to turn this into a startup, uh, we realized that 3D printing was actually a really amazing uh, market opportunity for this technology. So, you know, we were starting out with kind of like a a solution in search (laughs) of a problem. (laughs) And, you know, we talked to a lot of people in semiconductor lithography, which is an, you know, incredibly mature market. Like, you know, Intel basically makes all the decisions. There's 
exactly to um, tool companies that make the lithography tools and Intel keeps them at exactly 50% market share. And, you know, then all the photo resin companies have consolidated into, you know, being just like, I don't know, three or four, maybe in the whole world. And that's not a very friendly kind of market for, for a startup. And, and actually the, the sort of funny sort of story into my own, um, relationship with 3d printing was, um, frankly when when all of this was happening everything i'm just you know describing i i really thought that 3d printing was the dumbest thing ever <laughs> like i re- i really did and we don't and, get a lot of people admitting to that now oh, years ago yeah. it was really easy <laughs> yeah nice. but like I, and I this like yeah and i think to put to put every the put to put everyone's sort of brain in, into like the era this was like so you know one i was very biased in the sense that i was you know, studying uh, polymer chemistry, material science, and like, uh, sort of, I was working at like the cutting edge of of polymer science. And then sitting there looking at like, you know, this sort of like heyday of like the maker bot and like people running around and being like, we're going to have a printer in every home and you'll never yeah. need, you know, anything that ever oh, breaks is... Yeah, exactly. You know, anything that ever breaks is like you're gonna just fix it, fix it at your house. And and I'm sitting there looking at this and going, this is like a hot glue gun on a gantry. (laughs) And like, and actually, I don't know if you guys know that that was that was um um that was the original uh, Scott Crump patent was actually like a hot glue gun on a gantry was was basically the original FDM patent. So. I'm not dissing yeah, so it. Scott, like, Scott Crump's story here is that he was yeah. he was he was going to uh, actually uh, he was going to repair a little frog thing, and he took a, actually a little glue gun, and he worked in semiconductor at the time. It was his family's like this crazy family of inventors. He doesn't even have the most patents in his family, and he just actually used a glue gun. And he was like, okay, wait a minute, we could use a hot glue gun. Uh, in a gantry <laughs> to make stuff for our company to make semiconductor components. So that yeah. literally is it. You know what's even crazier? The original inspiration for well, the original inspiration for powder bed fusion, which one of the original inspiration for powder bed fusion, because that's a bit of a complicated story, but was essentially it was the Star Trek transporter. Replicator. No, 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 it was the transporter. Oh, the transporter. Thing, uh, oh, the transporter. No, it was the way that it, the special effect in the original Star Trek show, right? Oh, oh, oh. Um, the, the way that they were like, like sort of rastering people's no, bodies no, in. They, they, they used like a sand right oh, they were doing oh. like a sand and then the sand would kind of collapse and the sand would be built up and they would reverse it to, to make the special effect of, of, of doing the transporter right so the effect of these people kind of discombobulating if you will yeah and that inspired them into the thinking about like oh, wait a minute like that if we could do that like a rematerialization technology like the opposite of what the transporter is doing right then we could build things <laughs> that's awesome that's amazing. That's even less. So that's a Carl Deckard story, right? That there are other, there are other sources for potential powder bed fusion uh, yeah. origin stories. But, um, but so yeah, yeah, the frog story is really great as well. But anyway, so, so, so you, you thought it was silly. I thought it was silly. I was a, a hater, so to speak. And <laughs> Very good. I, like that. I yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, and then what I realized was, so, you know, we were seriously considering it. And, you know, at that point, you know, it was a mature enough market that all the original patents were off patent. You know, it was a mature enough market that there was, you know, a real 
marketplace, a real like sense um, of what was happening. But it was it was very clear that to me that three D printing was not additive manufacturing, um, and that um, the the thing that was gating this sort of whole space was that you know the materials suck <laughs> they're not durable and so i basically kind of turned my uh haterism on its head and i basically did the you know the opposite which was kind of throw my whole life <laughs> into solving that problem and 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 we sort of said hey well actually like you know we know we can make these really strong materials we think we might be able to 3d print them we've done it in 2d i had done a little bit of um nano 3d printing on um, a tool called a nanoscribe while i was at caltech i just like happened to have access to that we basically through a lot of conversations like hundreds and hundreds of conversations with uh with folks in the field kind of realized like hey the like the thing that's keeping this in sort of prototyping land is like fundamentally a material science problem and you know we think we might have a solution to that let's just go all in on that and, okay, so just a little bit. You were, you were doing like this really nice overview of like uh, the SLA technologies and your your technology, how it differs. Could you go a little bit deeper into that, and then we can go back to the origin story? I think. Uh, oh, okay, sure. Yeah. So from the outside looking in, when the print is running, you can't tell the difference. <laughs> um, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's a liquid resin. You shine light; it you know solidifies where you shine light. So you know, the watching our prints print, you can't appreciate the difference we we very intentionally chose not to uh, make the hardware um and you know now there are tons and tons of really high quality printers that are either you know fully open in the sense that the customer can change all the print settings or at the very least there are open enough to partner with third-party material suppliers right so maybe the end user can't change all the settings but it's not like you know the early days right like the whole 3d systems business model was like hey hp had this awesome like printer and ink ecosystem you know hardware software uh ink all from the same supplier um and obviously now we're in a very different world where you know you have i think the the nail in the coffin for that in terms of the ecosystem was you know stratasys bought origin which was this open materials you know industrial dlp and then everyone was waiting with bated breath to see, like, hey, <laughs> uh, are they going to keep it open? Uh, and yeah, and they did. And so, you know, now I think in the context and the, in the context of manufacturing, that had to happen. And the analogy that that you know I've been making since we've sort of founded the company, and and a lot of other people make as well is, you know, you don't buy a five million dollar injection molding press and then have the person who made that tell you me 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 it won't turn on unless you use my pellets <laughs> right <laughs> like it's just it's just not going to happen and so no. you know so in the context of manufacturing uh now i'm really excited about where the ecosystem is today where you know there are a lot of really good printers out there and people are partnering to deliver the full solutions and you know my sort of way of summarizing this uh, is like you know I always use Ellen Lee at, at Ford as my sort of demo example, you know, but it's like Ellen Lee is going to pick her favorite printer, her favorite software and her favorite material, and no one is going to stop her. 
right? And like, I think that wasn't obviously true even a year ago. Um, definitely not like two or three years ago. So I'm really excited to see the ecosystem maturing in a way where people are learning how to work together. People are getting over this idea that like every single thing has to come from the same kind of walled ecosystem. And obviously customers want something that, you know, you turn it on and it works, right? They don't want to have to like re-qualify every single aspect of it. And there's value to be created in, you know, turnkey solutions, right? But I think it's a really exciting time in additive where the best materials for a specific application can win, right? The best hardware for that specific application can win the best software. You know, you have like these incredibly niche uh, opportunities and and that's really what is required to do true manufacturing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, uh, but talk to us a little bit about your technology. So how does it work differently than, how is it, how is it different than, than, uh, than what we're used to? Uh, yeah, so the way in which it's different is the polymerization mechanism. So again, you know, every resin out there on the market today that you can buy is either a photoradical system, so like acrylate, methacrylate are the typical monomers for that, or a cationic system, which is like an epoxy monomer. Some people do hybrids, um, or some people do hybrids of uh, other thermosets like urethanes combined with a photopolymer. Uh, right, so like a lot of the innovation from carbon, for example, has been in combining uh, thermosets and photopolymers. Um, and the fundamental difference with us is, again, we're we're sort of none of the above chemically, and we're doing this reaction called olefin metathesis, and um, that enables us to use completely different monomers, and then those mo- different monomers enable us to hit properties that are uh, on a completely different kind of curve than anybody else so you know we can hit what are what are some of the most impressive properties that you're able to hit that yeah so the main right the main thing that we've focused on as like the main white space we founded the company to to address and actually this there's sort of a funny sort of full circle story to this with with stratasys but you know when we launched on the origin printer i was saying to some of the folks at stratasys who had been around for a while i said you know it's your fault that that I started that I started this company because you know six years ago when we were figuring out what we wanted to do with this chemistry I had uh, a Stratasys sales rep I I was showing him this the sort of list of properties that I thought I could hit and I'll get to what those properties are in just a second but uh, he said he said wow if you could do that that would be the holy grail of three D printing. And I said, okay, great. Lock the spec at Holy Grail. <laughs> and then we spent, you know, six years actually figuring out how to get it to work uh, on that printer and drop it in. And, and you know, then later launched on on the origin from Stratasys. So that was kind of a fun story to tell their team and, and share with, with some folks. But the, yeah, the main thing that we focused on, uh, the simplest way of saying it is tough and hot at the same time. I'd be happy, you know, in show notes to, We'll include a link to the spec sheet, include different graphs and stuff for people to visualize it. But the for any plastic or polymer in your everyday life, you take for granted that it is tough, right? It's not going to shatter when you drop it on the floor. And it has a high working temperature, right? It's not going to melt in a hot car. And those are just like, you don't even, my joke is like a disposable plastic spoon, which like 
you do not think of as a high performance material. You're you're going to use it once, you know, eat your yogurt and throw it out. And that actually has better thermomechanical properties than literally like 99.9% of the additive polymers that are out there. And so what we really focused on was this idea of tough and hot together. So to give you a sense of it with core alpha, you know, the uh, ultimate tensile strength is about 70 megapascals. It gets to 20% uh, elongation before breaking, uh, but it also has a glass transition temperature that, you know, depending on the exact way you measure it is between 165 and 170 C. That combo of tough and hot together is uh, unprecedented. And it's it's because of the materials science, the chemistry limitations of the way people have been making photopolymers. So most things that have a higher working temperature than core alpha are 1% at break, 2% at break, right? Um, and similarly, most things that have a higher elongation at break um, than core alpha will deform at you know very, very low uh, temperatures. So if you're talking about putting a product you know into a vehicle putting a product into aerospace applications putting a product into a medical device um you i forget his last name but one of the recent uh episodes was from aj who was from medtronic but speaking on behalf of himself right he he the, the whole first you know 20 minutes of that episode was him <laughs> like going through all yeah, all these durability requirements are really hard. They're really serious, um, and it's not—it's not a given um, that you know these materials are stable. So, getting great properties on day one is really hard. Then there's also the weathering, right? So, does it? How does it It'll behave last. under under yeah. you know ultraviolet light? Can you use it outside, inside? But yeah, that that idea of tough and hot at the same time was kind of the white big white space that no one could touch that you know, this Stratasys sales rep was telling us, you know, he would consider the Holy Grail. You know, then what comes with that it, by nature of the materials is also, you know, grade zero cyto cytotoxicity, uh, almost no moisture absorption, uh, like the many additive polymers, especially in like SLS, MGF, any of the nylons eat a lot of water. And that can really uh, be quite challenging, not just in terms of the printing and processing, but then the, the the lifetime and durability of those. So whether that you need that low moisture absorption to make sure that you're not leaching anything out of the material in, let's say, a medical application or dental application, um, or you want to develop an autoclave process to be able to sterilize that device, or you just want to put it in a hot environment you know you're obviously you're not going to print a car engine out of core alpha it's still a polymer at the end of the day but you could print components that are sitting right next to the engine um and that you know that's not a that's not a problem so a lot of the the main applications that we've been looking into are in uh different kinds of components enclosures connectors uh manifolds uh for you know, vehicles for whether that's, you know, auto or aero um, or uh, like defense vehicles, as well as in, um, you know, medical devices, consumer products. And one thing, actually, we, we were sort of joking a little bit about this before uh, we hit record, but I'll, I'll share another sort of funny sort of property of the the core materials that kind of connects back to the the founding story, which, which is uh, when I 
So when we really decided like, hey, we're going to do this, and I was kind of flipping my brain from, okay, I still think 3D printing is dumb, but it wouldn't be so dumb <laughs> if, it, you know, <laughs> if it, you could actually print something that was tough and, and could, you know, survive and be durable. I had this idea, and this is kind of this is kind of the idea of where the the word you know, Joyce that you you shared at the beginning, functional lithography. You know, I had people say, "Well, it's not. You can't call it a photoresist because it's not that, right? It, you're using it for something, right?" And so I had this vision, like, "Hey, if this works, and we don't know if it works, right? This is a long time ago, but if we could get it to work, then you would never need a mold ever again, right?" That was the like sort of founding like excitement and vision and i think one of the things in my head that like flipped me from this is so dumb to like i'm gonna throw my whole life <laughs> into solving this problem like, you mean an injection mold or you mean yeah like yeah and yeah mold for injection molding ever again like you just print what you want in the shape that you want it with the properties that are durable enough in the amount that you want you know maybe even regionally you you know it gets made as close to end user who just bought the thing as possible or as close to the you know the factory that's gonna then integrate that component into another you know device like this whole idea of distributed digital manufacturing the virtual warehouse right like all of that could be real if the materials could be production grade right and that was the founding vision and i think that's that's really a big part of the whole excitement around 3d printing from the beginning right is like if this could completely displace injection molding and i'm sure every guest that you've ever had on the show would have a sort of different opinion of how far along how close to that reality we really are today but the funny sort of story is as once we did get it out there and we started uh, engaging with this industry and you know printing parts for people and sharing the properties of core alpha the and this is a classic like customer discovery story um and steve blank who's one of the the sort of inventors of this method and this kind of like lean startup um methodology thought thought this was hilarious when i told it to him but it, it, i we had all these people say wow you have those properties 160 something glass transition temperature you know and it's you know uh that tough at the same time that would make an amazing mold <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I'm like, I don't care about, I'm going to like disrupt molds. I'm going to like, you know, but you can't ignore that. And I think that's like, so what's been funny for me and sort of ironic is like, I'm not personally passionate about rapid tooling. Uh, like, it's not what I like energize me, like throw my whole life into this, this company. The whole idea was like, don't have tooling, don't do molding. But what's really funny is that we, you know, like obviously we can't ignore it and you you got to give the people what we want so actually you know tooling printing you know mold inserts for blow molding injection molding all the other you know reactive injection molding all all this kind of stuff it's actually our by sort of number of units sold that's actually our biggest application of core alpha um in some ways it actually makes a lot of sense because it's a lot of work to qualify a new material, right? So if I'm telling someone like, hey, you know, you're going to use Core Alpha like, and like fly that in your plane, right? Like there's a lot of work to do to qualify that. And we have a lot of customers who are, you know, getting started on that. But it's a lot, it's a whole lot easier to say, yeah, you know, I've been using this whatever polyurethane for the last 40 years. And I, what I really need is just a faster way to get at 
parts made out of that material uh, where I don't know, either be, I want to make the molds in-house because of cost or supply chain issues, et cetera. Um, and so, yeah, it's been kind of funny and, and sort of humbling in the sense that, you know, the, the best use case right now and our most popular one uh, is, is actually in, in tooling and, and printing tooling. Uh, and, and we were just recently actually awarded a $3 million grant from the U.S. Department of Energy to make really, really high-performance tooling for uh, the automotive sector. So uh, accelerate automotive manufacturing and particularly around uh, lightweighting applications. So anyways, it's a, been a very fun ride and like kind of humbling experience where you know you have this vision and this excitement and this idea of how it could disrupt everything. And then you also got to listen to, yeah. And you got to listen to what people want and realize that, you know, Hey, you know, for a lot of people, what they want is they don't want to requalify the material, but they do want their parts a whole lot faster and a whole lot cheaper. And, and, you know, rapid tooling is incredibly valuable in in that sense. Okay. okay. How how long um, does the core alpha material last for? Like what's it? It's after it's been, polymerized after it's been hit by light like how how long will it remain will keep its properties i guess yeah it's a good question and some of it really depends on the environment um Mm -hmm. you know so obviously if you're doing like a accelerated weathering for something that where you'd imagine uh kind of like outdoors so a lot of like ultraviolet light and hot humidity like thermal cycling right like the over time, the the material will uh, embrittle, right? And right. the okay. the like that's just how it happens. Everything falls apart, and you know. So there's a lot of tricks that you can play in terms of putting stabilizers in there to make that last as long as possible. And you know, every application has like its different uh, metric or, or spec for it. One, one really exciting, um, partnership that I guess we haven't technically announced as of this recording, but by the time we post this, it will, it'll be out there. So I'm, I'm free to share, um, is we did a, a collaboration with this really high performance coatings company called Seracote, which is C-E-R-A-K-O-T-E. And they um, they make these ceramic uh, spray coatings that are incredibly thin and incredibly rugged, like ri- like ridiculous properties and protection capability to the underlying material. And the original idea when we met them was, hey, we've got like the most rugged material. You've got the most rugged coating. Like what's going to happen <laughs> when we combine these? And uh, we printed some parts and put them in a a QUV uh, testing chamber. And I think after 3000 hours of like constant bombardment with UV light and like hot and humid, I forget the exact conditions uh, uh, of that test uh, off the top of my head. uh, They finally saw some sign of, uh, you know, degradation on, uh, on this material. But, you know, the, the bar, again, depending on your application, the the threshold for most people might be 500 hours or 1000 hours right and and so um what was really exciting for us was you know now actually not only can you get any color that you want cuz you have this coating that could basically paint the part any color and it's thin enough where it doesn't mess with the you know the aesthetic or the accuracy of the part but now you know for these like extreme durability 
applications or um you know outdoor weathering applications you actually have you know something that can last a really 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 long time and what was exciting for them was to be able to show hey photopolymers are classically unstable to uv light our you know our cerakote product protected this thing for a really really long period of time so yeah we'll we'll put that in the show notes as well and um uh you know it'll be announced by the time by the time we release this but that's just one example where you know the um you know through really if you're really thinking about it from a perspective of manufacturing right you you can find solutions that that where you know with again we're sort of at the cutting edge right not every additive polymer can can do this but um there are ways where you can hit performance that you know is definitely durable enough for end use but where's like the because like it does compare like there are other powder bed fusion materials and also fdm materials that have similar performance or similar in in certain things you know Mm -hmm. and that's of course going to be much cheaper and you can recycle the material right Um, yeah so yeah so in terms of the powder bed stuff i think the main sort of benefit over of like our process over those or like where it could win is in is in the surface quality um as well as this like idea that there's no moisture absorption so you can actually have like you know fluidically sealed surfaces because it's at it's kind of full density right and which is a it's a real challenge in any of the sintering processes um you know the the those ha- can be really challenging in a lot of biological and medical applications because the rough surfaces will actually create homes for you know bacteria to grow etc then versus fdm i think the main thing you know obviously there's a lot of great i mean the the whole i think one of the advantages of fdm is you can take the whatever 100 years of innovation in thermoplastics and as long as you can get it you know into the right sort of filament or pellets and you know get the right temperature and surface adhesion you know you can you can print it right the thing that's always i mean one is sort of surface quality but the the second one is just the the isotropy and like the classic you know z strength problem um is one for fdm but the the other thing for certain production applications where you really need to build a true engineering allowables data set one of the things that we've heard and i can't like totally reveal exactly sort of where we've heard some of this stuff but one of the challenges with fdm is so so yeah you, let's say like you want to do fdm ultem right that's hugely popular you know ultem like had this kind of incredible brand value and then i think it was like the air force or the navy did did some qualification and you know, Boeing did some work on it. And so then everyone's just sort of like, yeah, like FDM Ultem, let's go after this. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, printing in, in aerospace where that's like the go-to. Um, and it's a big, it's a big market. The And so for certain things, that's great. And if you can do it, awesome. But one of the things that can be challenging is like the, the actual properties, it's not just that they're anisotropic. So, you know, you get a you know, maybe half the strength in Z that you do in XY, right? Because of the adhesion between the layers. What is a real deal breaker for a lot of applications is the proper, so you can deal with that, like carbon fiber composites are anisotropic, but they're in every airplane, 
right? They're starting to be in almost every you know new car, right? Um, so you can model anisotropy, and engineers have figured that out. What is unacceptable is you actually will get different properties depending on the geometry. So the example is like you print your test part and you print the test part with a dog bone next to it. Just having the dog bone next to it, when the extrusion head you know, stops, jumps over to the next one, right? There's enough difference in the cooling of that layer that you actually get totally different properties depending on the shape that you're doing it. And oh, so for a, like a mission critical application for, you know, spacecraft or airplane, you are not like that is not allowed. Like you can't, no engineer can basically every, every geometry would need its own safety um, materials database for the engineering levels. So it becomes like intractable or like at least impractical because of that. So it's like there, I have something written about this where it's like the, you know, it's one thing to have anisotropy in the three dimensions of space, but then you, you can't have the the anisotropy in time, right? Like that's where it becomes a deal breaker. So that's where I think, you know, DLP uh, can have really huge advantages, you know, which is like you can, you know, yeah, most of the printer platforms are smaller. There's a bunch of people working on, you know, bigger and bigger platforms for those things with, you know, stitching together um, lots of exposures and stuff but you know you can get really great surface quality really really high accuracy and parts that are anis or sorry isotropic or at least isotropic enough and stable enough print to print and geometry to geometry where you can actually build that confidence i I understand what you're trying to say uh (laughs) yeah (laughs) but it depends of course on what you want to do with that part and what's if it's under load or 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 if it's similar geometry or where it's placed and that kind of thing oh yeah totally Um, yeah and if it doesn't need if there's not load bearing yeah and you just want it fast then yeah you can do it and you know i think for us for most of the engagements and interactions that we have it's like we tend to be able to help people when they've tried everything (laughs) like and nothing works right so it's like if you're already using fdm and getting what you want like that's like that's awesome and like you know keep keep at it and we need you know more people solving problems and all these different ones and i think what what we're kind of interested in are like what's you know what's impossible with today's 3d printing or maybe it's possible to do the prototype it's possible to do the press release but it's not possible or not practical to do the true production additive manufacturing that's where we tend to have the most fun Mm, but i mean there are tens of millions of hearing aids being made and stuff like that i mean there are certain things that still work oh yeah totally totally yeah hearing aids is great um i mean if you consider sort of tooling or or um investment casting right like there's tons of real applications right so i'm certainly yeah i'm not i'm not suggesting that it's like completely useless but i guess i think uh you know the if you if you just sort of google let's say 3d printed fill in the blank right the vast majority of the things that you'd find are either not actually happening uh or would just be like uh i don't know expensive or like bespoke that no one in practices is doing it 
And how are you then on pricing then? Are you trying to make the material really accessible or is it like, uh, are you trying to make it very premium? What's, what's the, the, the way forward? Yeah, here? right now we are uh, amongst the most expensive photopolymers that you can possibly buy. Um, so you know, like um, <laughs> many, many hundreds of dollars per liter um, or per, per kilogram. Uh, so yeah, so that is, um, you know, obviously as a startup, or not trying to, you know, undercut the big chemical companies on cost, and um, and we, you know, are starting at, at a higher price point. We definitely recognize that, you know, in order to move into certain manufacturing applications, you know, that has to come down. Uh, and we've done a lot of work to make sure that there's actually no reason why, fundamental reason why we cannot. Uh, bring our material to a price point that's competitive with traditional uh resins uh it's it's basically just a like purchasing power and volume so you know the more the more customers we get the more production applications that we find the more we can bring the price of the resin down for everybody um so it's it's really you know just part of the again like because i'm not using any of the same molecules that everybody else is uh, you know there's a lot of our components where you know the like our we can offer a better price when we can you know be buying railroad cars full of starting material at a time yeah are you are you worried that the but because then you're going to need like additional funding and uh, additional rounds to really kind of like bulk up that volume right or were you going more to become profitable and kind of like bootstrap it more let's say um yeah i mean we're we are a venture-backed company um and you know at the same time i think within the category of venture-backed companies like we have not raised like for lack of a better word too much money um you know there's there's definitely like i think in this space and not to sort of point fingers or pick fights but it's like because of the excitement and hype around 3d printing i think that you know, one problem that folks often have is just getting tons and tons of money and then not necessarily being able to realize, uh, you know, a business that, that kind of matches that or, or warrants that. Um, so, but yeah, I would say, you know, we're definitely not bootstrapping this thing and, um, we are venture backed and trying to build, you know, a big, a big business and, you know, at the same time trying to be thoughtful about, uh, those kind of, what you'd call like value inflection points and when in when we're raising capital and you know exactly how much capital do we need to get to that next um stage that next scale okay well thank you for being here today thank you yeah. so much for for telling your story and letting us know what uh, you're going to be trying to do yeah so sounds very exciting thank you thank you so much for having me on the show really appreciate it and uh, max thank you for being there as well as always serious. and thank you for listening uh, this is another episode of the 3D Pod, and have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com.